This is Me, Myself and Disaster, the show all about disasters with a human focus. From hurricanes to humanitarian issues, we journey across fault lines to explore trends in disaster preparedness, response and recovery. Over to you, Josh and Andrew. Hello and welcome back to Me, Myself and Disaster, the show where we talk all things disaster with a human focus. We've just landed in Japan and heading on a road trip across some of the tsunami-affected areas along the north coast. Our first stop is Ishinomaki, a city with a population of about 140,000 people that was devastated after the 2011 tsunami. The city is situated close to the water and now stands behind a large seawall running the length of the coast. Our guest today moved to Japan from the United Kingdom more than 30 years ago and lived through the tsunami, which, like many people, changed his life forever. Andrew... Who is joining us for this episode here today in Ishinomaki? Josh, we're speaking with Richard Halberstadt, director of the Katawaki Elementary School Ruins, a recently opened museum to share the story of the tsunami damage in this area. Much of the school building remains just as it did on the day of the earthquake, which was followed by a fire and then the impact of the tsunami. Richard was an associate professor at the Ishinomaki Senshu University at the time of the earthquake and we'll be asking him what happened on that afternoon that changed Japan forever, how this disaster has changed the country's approach to future disasters and how the seawalls have been received since installation. Let's unpack this complex disaster that resulted from the 2011 Tohoku earthquake with Richard Halberstadt here on Meet Myself and Disaster. We're here today in Ishtamaki, Japan with Richard Halberstadt. Richard, welcome to the show. Hi, Andrew and Josh. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Richard, you've had a career and journey that some may say is very unique. Can you take us through your journey that found you moving to the regional Japanese city of Ishtamaki? Um, yeah. Uh, well, I mean, everyone has their own individual story. I don't think mine is that much more special than anyone else's. But it just all started with me being good at foreign languages uh, and resulted in me wanting to do something a bit different in university so that I majored in Japanese in university um, for no particular reason. It would be nice to sort of say that I was um, completely enchanted by Japan and loved manga and, and assassins and ninja and this, things like this, but it's not that at all. I just was interested in the language in itself. Uh, and that naturally led to coming to Japan and spending a couple of years um, helping out with English classes in schools uh, and got me really in love with the country uh, and I decided I wanted to continue to work here so I just happened to find the job that brought me to Ishinomaki which was working in Ishinomaki Senshi University. It's um, I mean there's, there's there's a very specific purpose while we're here for for this podcast. Um, the 11th uh, of March 2011 you know for some people they may not know about that date but for here in Japan it's a very sombering you know, kind of date for, for many here um, that was obviously the day that su- the tsunami struck this area yep. and you were actually in this area on that day yep. can you take us through your personal recollection of that day and, and the days that ensued after that yeah well uh, as you say I mean it's, it's the equivalent of the assassination of JFK in the states really I mean it's mm. just engraven in our memories the, the, the time down to the second really um, and um, I, as I said, I was working in Ishinomaki Senshi University as a lecturer at the time. And because the thing happened on a Friday afternoon, um, I was actually at work in the university, which was a very lucky place to be in mm. um, because I actually didn't have to go into work that day because you can imagine that March 11th is spring break. So unless you had something to do at work, you didn't have to go in. And I didn't have anything to do that day. But I, 
just for some reason, when I woke up, I decided I'm going to be a good boy and, and, and <laughs> go in. But that was a really lucky decision because if I had actually been in my um, apartment mm. when the thing struck, I would have been okay because I live on a high floor, but I would have ended up being isolated by the floodwaters and not able to leave and needing to be rescued by, by the self-defense forces. Um, and not only that, my car would have been submerged and I'd have lost that. Yeah. But as a result of going to work, I went to work in my car. My car was safe. I was safe uh, because none of the tsunami waters actually flooded into the campus. They came quite close, but not into it. So I was in the best place I could be really, which was, you know, I feel like I used up my whole life's luck <laughs> in that one day just, just, just to get through it like that. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, so initially, I just was forced to stay at the university because the whole city was flooded. Mm. Um, it, you know, an hour after the quake, the, the, the tsunami came and just flooded everything. So um, I was forced to stay at the university along with various other members of staff and teachers and a few students as well. Um, so we were just sleeping in, in, in the staff room on the cold floor um, and just wrapping up as warm as we could with all the clothes that we had. Um, and uh, I was at the university for about three days. Um, and we, we sort of shared food that we had and some supplies started to get delivered a couple of days later, like from from our sister university in Tokyo and so on. Um, and uh, then about three days afterwards, uh, an Ishinomaki friend came to look for me, partly to check that I was okay, um, and partly to say that our mutual friend uh, who runs the biggest hotel here in Ishinomaki, it's called Ishinomaki Grand Hotel, um, that he had turned the hotel into an evacuation shelter and let's go and meet him. And so we did that. Mm. Um, the, the city was still flooded to a certain extent, so it was like, you know, walking through a n nuclear war and a lot annihilation sort of yeah. scenario just still water mud everywhere and, and cars stuck into building windows it was just you know devastation um, so that was very depressing because you, you kind of felt like oh this is the end for Ishinomaki we're not yeah. going to get over this um, but we made it to the hotel um, and my friend, of course, because he's worried about me, he said, oh, you should stay here. So that became my, my evacuation shelter yeah. um, for, 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 for some days afterwards. So can, for, for, for people that may not have been in this area or may not have seen some of the imagery, can you kind of explain or, or, or paint a picture for some of the listeners around why the tsunami here was so catastrophic? Andrew and I, obviously the first thing we noticed when we drove into Ishinomaki was how flat it was and um, that you're obviously right near the ocean side. Can you kind of paint the picture around why was the tsunami so catastrophic in Ishinomaki? Okay, well, I think there are a number of issues. Um, firstly, you've got the fact that we are the closest city to the epicenter of the quake, which makes a big difference. And then you've got the, the geography of Ishinomaki itself, especially since um, since I've been in Ishinomaki, Ishinomaki joined together with sort of smaller towns around it to make the current city. And that's resulted in having a very, very long coastline, of course, which is what's most affected by tsunami, obviously. And then in addition to that, there are two rivers that run through the city. And rivers are usually a really good thing in terms of agriculture and making the land abundant and everything. But um, when it comes to tsunami, they act as a kind of weak point, an entry point for the tsunami to flood up the river. So that meant there was more flooding deeper inland through the rivers. So that geographical situation made a big difference. And then you've got the, the human aspect in the sense that, I mean, the, the, the Pacific coast of North Japan is probably the most susceptible to tsunami of 
all of Japan, I mean, J- Japan in general is, but yeah. we get it worst of all most of the time. Um, but despite that, um, Ishinomaki didn't have that much in the way of flood walls. Um, especially embankments up the rivers and so on. And there are historical reasons for this because um, it used to be, in Japanese, it's called Kawaminato, which means river port. So the actual fish port was actually in the, on the river yeah. as opposed to on the coast. Um, and so building embankments would get in the way of unloading the fish and everything. So so they didn't do that. Uh, then the fish port actually some years before I actually came to Ishinomaki moved to another place. So they could have built embankments then, but they didn't. Um, so I think that had uh, an effect on, on, on the damage as well. Uh, so, it, you know, it's, it's a number of facts and also just the sheer scale of the disaster because, I mean, it's the fourth, the fourth biggest um, tsunami in, the his, in recorded history so far. So, I mean, there are some things, whatever you do, you can't really, you know, protect and you just have to learn to live with it. Mm. I mean, when it comes to flood walls, you've, there are lots of issues. Maybe we can talk about that later, but, you know, whether they're good or bad and whether you should build them or not and so on. Yeah, yeah we're having the same sort of debate back home at the moment. So in Australia, I guess um, we had a Japanese government delegation I was meeting with last week and trying to explain the concept of a flood levy to them. Um, we said it was a seawall because it's so familiar to people here what a seawall is. And I think there's that, there's that risk that people become so complacent because it's kind of go well the, the levee's here to protect me the seawall's here to protect me but actually will it whatever's a bigger tsunami so there yes we'll come to that i was going to ask too in terms of when you were here when the tsunami hit was fukushima and the nuclear power plant was that a concern for you were you far enough away that it wasn't going to cause any any damage up this part of the world or were you still close enough that was a concern uh it was and it wasn't a concern because i mean it was close enough that if it had exploded and so on then that could have been a big problem for ishinomaki um we're close enough for it for that um, and also that had a very big effect on on me personally I had my big drama afterwards which maybe we can go into later but um, but um, ironically it wasn't so much of a thing for us at the actual time because we were just concerned with just getting by day to day Mm. in a tsunami hit area which has got no electricity no water no gas Um, so you know we had other things on our plate and we 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 didn't have tv or anything like that of course but we could listen on the radio to reports about the about fukushima so we knew that there was a problem but then you had the fact that the japanese government wasn't shall we say being incredibly forthcoming about the actual state of things yeah um and also um uh, we we just you know we just had other things to think about so in that sense it wasn't much of a thing for us and as a, a British national at the time you're living in a, a foreign country and I believe you were kind of encouraged to head back home when that sort of happened what what sort of compelled you to stay in Japan at the time and, and particularly in Ishtamaki yeah I mean th- this was my big sort of um, life changing thing that happened because um, as, as we mentioned about Fukushima then that resulted in the British government telling all British nationals in North Japan and the Tokyo area um, that it's dangerous and they should leave and they were saying if you make your own way to Narita airport which is you know by Tokyo um, then then the government would take us back by charter jet for free to the UK um, and so I was eligible for that but because I was in the middle of the disaster area then I couldn't move freely at all and so I, they actually the, the embassy contacted me and said they would come and get me um, which was kind of quite a surprise because I hadn't really thought about that at all um and it was very um it was very 
difficult to decide what to do because you, you felt the pressure of the embassy. These people don't usually contact you, so you feel like you have to do what they say. Um, and at the same time, you've got all your friends in Ishinomaki hearing that you've got the chance to go back and saying, oh, you should definitely go back because things are terrible here and you can come back when things have calmed down. But then you've got the other side of things where you, you've got these good friends who are all in trouble and you're really worried about them and, and want to do your best to help them. And so I had this like fight in myself about what to do. Um, and the embassy came to get me. Uh, they they knew that I was conflicted about what to do. And they were really great. They were, I mean, you know, they were fantastic. And we went to the neighboring city of Sendai, which is the biggest city in North Japan. And they said, well, let's go back there. We can talk more and you can make a final decision there. And so I sort of said provision, provisional goodbyes to everyone in Ishinomaki, mm. like tears and hugs and everything. Um, went to Sendai, talked with the embassy people who were great. They were kind of like almost psychological counseling helped me to sort of sort out my own ideas and I kind of spent a sleepless night wondering what to do um, and eventually I decided I just couldn't leave my friends because they'd been so good to me the, at the time it was 18 years I'd been living in the city mm. um, and so I decided to that I couldn't go back to England I wanted to stay in Ishinomaki and help with the reconstruction um, and so I mean to cut a long story short to cut a long story short um, the next day um, I won't tell you how but I got back to Ishinomaki and so more tears and more hugs when I came back again um, and and of course it you know really I had so many good friends even before that but making that decision sort of really kind of cemented mm. my position in the community as someone as an Ishinomaki guy kind of thing yeah um, so I don't think they'd ever let me leave now I'm probably stuck here for good yeah and I think that's a really interesting thing because we you know we often you know in that disaster space we talk about how strong connection in community is often you know that's perceived as resilience and obviously also through disasters we also see that binding of community coming together and obviously that's you know your story you already had that friendship but that was that, was that galvanizing moment for you and I guess there'd, there'd be hundreds of thousands of stories up and down the north coast of Japan because of that day on March um, but more broadly after that tsunami it really feels like it was also a defining moment for the country so if we like what are your thoughts on that like after that day what has kind of changed for not just Ishinomaki but the whole country in terms of disasters and tsunamis preparation um and and you know if this was to happen again well that's a big one <laughs> um yeah well of course i mean i mean it goes without saying that it just it didn't change perceptions i think because i mean this is such a disaster prone country that it's not the first time we've had a tsunami it's not the first time we've had an earthquake it's just that it was bigger than usual mm. i mean as far as the nuclear reactor goes that was more of a first time i think um so i mean this country is incredibly well prepared for disasters compared with a lot of other countries um, and a lot of it went really well like I mean if we go back to what happened just after the quake and before the tsunami came in Ishinomaki then immediately they have speakers set up all over the city uh, to broadcast information um, and so and that was working mm. that was working because of course they have um, generators to provide electricity even if there's a power cut and so they were actually broadcasting that a giant tsunami warning has been issued and please evacuate high ground, blah, blah, blah. That was all going really well until the tsunami came and basically washed everything away and that was the end of that. Yeah. Um, but in terms of disaster preparedness, I mean, the country is really good. Um, although I think um, in terms of evacuation shelters, they have a lot of experience with those and it did work to a certain extent. It's just that the scale of the thing was so big this mm. time that just ha having to cope with that many evacuees in a limited space did cause problems that 
have provided issues to be um, counted in the future. I mean, the obvious one is you've got all these people and toilets. What to do about them? That's yeah. the really big one. Yeah. Um, and then in addition to that, I mean, I could go on and on, but in addition to that, you've got more recent problems. You've got the, now we've, we've got COVID to deal with and trying to keep, um, it's called in Japanese, it's mitsu, which is being close together and trying to avoid that close contact for infectious diseases is a future thing that has to be addressed in future evacuation shelters if they're necessary. Mm. As we're driving in today, it was really fascinating looking at Google Maps and seeing, like I said to Josh, let's go and drive past the ocean on the way in, sort of see, what, see where we are, get our bearings. But there's actually these giant concrete barriers that are, I guess for our listeners listening today, they're kind of um, from the roadside, like an angular almost a little concrete hill facing towards the water and that was covering um, several kilometres of roadway as we as we came in today. How's the community reacted to that? I mean there's probably I guess some discussion around initially um, they've lost now I guess that amenity by the sea but a sense of protection now. What's What's been the reaction initially and then I'm keen to ask you as well about has that set itself up for some sort of complacency around we've got this great protecting concrete wall here but will it actually protect us from the next big tsunami yeah that, that's another difficult one that that you know you could talk about from so many viewpoints um, and certainly I mean you, you've you've got it in one in the sense that these big concrete walls blocking out the views of the sea have been a very big point of contention I mean in the whole area not just Ishinomaki um, and so when they were d- deciding whether to build them or not there were a lot of um, dissenting opinions um, and the, the main one being that we we love the views of the ocean we don't want them to be blocked out and, and damage the natural environment and so on um, and then just other, other opinions like it costs so much to build these things and couldn't that money be used for better purposes and the, the biggie for me because I'm not 100% in favour of them myself is that there's no guarantee that they can stop future tsunami because you look at the um, example of of a town in the prefecture north of Miyagi where they already had a really big flood wall when 2011 happened and they were convinced that could stop any tsunami basically I wouldn't say they were complacent but they just thought they were okay Um, and the tsunami that came just immediately broke down the the flood wall Um, and if it had just been that it would have been as if the flood wall wasn't there Mm. but it was worse than that because that broken down flood wall became debris and that ended up crashing into other buildings and so all these blocks of concrete um, causing damage so that ended up causing more damage than if there hadn't been a flood wall in the first place. So as far as the flood walls that we have in Ishinomaki goes, then they may stop a tsunami, which would be fantastic, but they may, you know, cause more damage. There's just no way of of reading it. So my personal feeling is, do we really need them? Um, And, but... In return for that, if I say we don't need them so much, then I need to take personal responsibility for my safety and be prepared to evacuate to high ground and do things by the book in the event of a disaster, and I can't just rely on the city to protect me. Um, so uh, it's it's a very difficult argument because there isn't a right or wrong. It's a very much a grey zone. Although I would say that, I mean, in, there were people that were against buildings of flood walls, but eventually they ended up being built. But Japan is a relatively um, docile society, you could say. Um, so so even the people that were against it, when it happened, then it was a bit of, oh, well, it can't be helped. They, you know, it's, it's up. We can't do anything about it kind of thing. So there weren't huge demos in the streets or anything like that. One of my colleagues from back in Australia, he grew up in Sendai and moved to Australia for university. And he was saying that when people are young here, they kind of learn about the folklore and uh, the history. And it's one of those things, before they learn how to add and 
subtract maths at school, they actually learn around the tsunami risk. So do you think having these seawalls now is kind of, I guess, people are uh, they're probably uh, more relaxed about the risk of tsunami, would you say, from a younger age? They've kind of grown up with the seawalls. They're probably told that the seawalls are here to protect them. They haven't had that longevity of seeing what the tsunami can do if they're only sort of young now. Is there still that culture of there is a tsunami risk here um, because we've got the seawalls to protect us from potential sort of tsunami coming in? Um, my personal take on how I have seen things is that I don't think the existence of the flood walls whether they're there or not has made had much impact on how people feel about disasters because as you say they're educated about evacuation and disasters uh, and what to do in schools um, if there's an earthquake or something um, that has nothing to do with the existence of the flood walls. I think it, it, the notion of um, one thing we talk a lot about in disaster is that experience is often where learning comes from so often um, you know when we work in that community engagement space community development space it's really hard to get people to appreciate risk until they've actually experienced it. It'd be interesting to know we're now, um, you know, over 11 years on, some of the younger people in the community that may not have experienced that day, obviously, uh, and but they're learning about things in school. What do you feel like their sentiment is towards the risk? Do you feel like they think, oh, there's, there's, you know, there's tsunami, there's the seawalls here and, you know, I haven't really experienced that disaster. Then, you know, if they grow up with that, um, you know, if they grow up with all of that that they're knowing, where are they placed mentally if there was another you know, disaster like 2011. Yeah, I mean, that that's a really pertinent point that you made. And definitely um, the people that actually went through it are the people who are the most diligent about mm. preparing in the event of a future one. So like having, even I was pretty dismissive about disasters. I thought, oh, something, you know, things will be okay even if there's something bad. Uh, but now, you know, I keep stores of water and, 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 and food in case yeah. uh, of things. Um, and um, you're definitely right. And I've definitely, I think a lot of us in Ishinomaki feel that now it's been 12 years since the disaster. So you've got, say, elementary school students mm. growing up, not having been born when it happened or being babies and not having any memory of it. And there is definitely a lessening of risk awareness, mm. um, which is which is obvious, I think. You know, they view it, they know that there was a disaster here, um, not so much because of the flood walls, but just because of what they've been told. But they treat it a bit, a bit like ancient history and not yeah. something to do with them. Yeah. And so that's where places like where I work, this, yeah. these dis disaster ruins um, are play an important role yeah. in just showing these kids what tsunami can do mm. and making them aware that it's not something it's you know, making them aware that it's something they should be concerned about mm. I mean what I often say to kids and, and young students is that I don't want you to live every day in fear because mm. that would be just a terrible way to, 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 to exist but you know, you ought to have a little niche in your mind, yeah. aware of the fact that it might happen and, you know, to, to know how to evacuate correctly and to be aware of where the good places to evacuate are. Yeah. Um, although, of course, in during the reconstruction, then we are much stronger against um, tsunami than we used to be, not just because of flood walls, but because of things like um, more tsunami resistant buildings that have been built. And um, I'd love people to come and see for themselves, but they, they, there's a green mark mm. that they put on some of the buildings to yes. show that this building is suitable for evacuating into. And all these buildings, they have stocks of food and so on. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the city is preparing more, but we have to fight against complacency 
in terms of the younger generation. Yeah. And, and I think you made a really good point before around um, whatever mitigation you know you put in place, there is almost always going to be a, a level of residual risk that's left over, and that's you know us as individuals' responsibility to think about what you know we're personally going to do to deal with that. And Andrew and I definitely got that sense driving through, seeing all the signs on the buildings. It's obviously, like you said, the seawall is only one part of that strategy. It's obviously a holistic strategy around how you mitigate the tsunami risk. But great segue into um, you know the elementary school ruins here. I'd love you to kind of take us through, like, how did this come about? Because this is an amazing facility. And as our listeners may not be able to see this, because obviously a podcast, we're sitting in this amazing facility talking to Richard. Um, so how did this place come about? And I guess what is for you, what is the key mission of this centre? Okay, so so this place, it's called, the area is called Kadanawaki. So this is Kadanawaki Elementary School, which is now a ruined building, basically. Um, and it's about seven or 800 metres away from the sea. Um, and the area between the school and the ocean was completely built up before the tsunami. But the tsunami basically washed away almost all the buildings in that area. Um, and there are several sort of uh, ruined facilities, ruined schools, all dotted all around the disaster area. Um, but this place is unique in the sense that it wasn't just damaged by the tsunami, but some of the uh, debris that was crashed into the school building was actually burning as a result of people having stoves on at the time and, mm. and gas containers exploding and so on. Some of this bur uh, burning debris crashed into the school and the fire moved to the school building. So we, we not only had a tsunami, we had a fire here as well. Um, so a double whammy. Um, and uh, on the good side, all the kids that were in the school were safely evacuated. There's a, there's a hill right behind the school, really close, so it's easier to get to high ground. And they had been good about carrying out evacuation drills every year at the school anyway. Um, so all the kids that were actually in the school building were okay. They had already evacuated to high ground before the tsunami even came. But the, the, the ruined building and the accompanying exhibits that we have in other buildings close by um, are basically a testament to the importance of evacuation uh, and the damage that disasters can do. So it's a good place to see what damage can can be done by these things and also to, to, to show how important correct evacuation procedures are. I'm really interested to understand as well that um, this facility has been set up and it's absolutely amazing as Josh mentioned um, and it's We'll discuss some of the industry out here afterwards as well, but you're a non-Japanese person who, who runs this facility. How's the community reaction been to that, And I guess, in terms of enabling storytelling and, um, and I guess, being a key part of this place to, um, to run this? What's the community reaction been like to having someone who's not Japanese being here as a leader of this, of this facility? Well, I, mean, I don't know how much of a leader I am or just like a, like a trophy in a way. But, um, trophies, trophies are good. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I mean, I think, to be honest, I think it was kind of a calculation on the part of the city to have a non-Japanese sort of in a position like this because it makes it stand out and it, and it sort of attracts the attention of the media. Actually, before, I mean, this place only opened in April of 2022. And before it opened, I was actually working in another sort of related, place, which was only a temporary place um, with information on the disaster and reconstruction projects until 
this place opened. Uh, so that center was more focused on reconstruction projects. This place is more focused on the importance of evacuation and remembering the lessons learned from the disaster. Um, and both of them, I was like stuck at the top of the, you know, the director level on it. Um, and I think, as I say, that was that was partly just to get attention uh, because we did get a lot of media coverage which which you know, helped us get the message out um, and then of course the other point is the fact that I don't want to like blow my own trumpet too much but I'm pretty fluent in Japanese so um, you know <laughs> far more fluent than Andrew and I <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean I mean what I've been yeah living in Ishinomaki for 30 years and then additional years studying Japanese and living in other places um, so I'm pretty fluent I can talk about it in Japanese to the Japanese nationals and also I'm I can talk about it as a native English speaker to um, other, you know, non-Japanese visitors, so that that gives me an extra weapon mm. uh, in my in my in my arsenal. So out here in front of us, we've got this open sort of field where there's basically a memorial now, and beyond that, there's the ocean, and on one side there's a very sort of industrial area. We drove past there before. We saw some sort of logging and that sort of stuff happening, and lots of smokestacks, and obviously a fair bit of industry there, heavy industry. How has industry here recovered? That would have been hit very hard, I imagine by the tsunami and a lot of would have closed down or been demolished. How's the industry recovered or is it still recovering? And the economic cost to Ishtamaki, has it changed, I guess, what Ishtamaki does in terms of outputs and the, and the city's function? I mean, as a whole, yeah. I, Ishinomaki, to tell the truth, I mean, I don't like to say this because I live here, but I mean, it wasn't economically in the best of states even before the disaster. So it was a, economically on the decline and also population decline was also a big issue. Um, and so the disaster didn't cause that, but it worsened it. Um, although after 12 years after the disaster now, we've certainly like got back to a certain extent um, what was lost in the disaster in terms of both industry and in terms of, of um, um, I wouldn't say population is increasing, but you know the decline isn't as severe as it was just after the disaster. Um, but like you mentioned, the logging that is that exact that actually is um, the biggest single industry not industry, the biggest single factory, should I say, um, in the city. The, the main industry of Ishinomaki is fishing, fishing, fisheries and marine, uh, marine processed products. Um, but that uh, paper and pulp factory is the single biggest factory. Um, and that was pretty badly damaged, as you can imagine, by the tsunami because it's right by the ocean. Mm. And just um, fun trivia point, um, because it's paper and pulp, all that paper and pulp was washed inland by the tsunami waters. And that paper and pulp mixed up with the uh, mud that was brought in by the tsunami and sort of ended up, when it dried out, it created this sort of like primitive Japanese paper that you could actually like pick up wow. sheets of it sort of from the ground. Like um, a giant paper mache almost. Like that's right, yeah, yeah, wow. yeah, exactly. So that was that was a very surreal thing that happened. But the, the everyone was worried that this, this pulp factory would just leave because of the damage. Uh, but they actually rebuilt, which was a big relief because if they had left, that would have had a domino effect Effect and, and lots of other smaller companies that rely on that big factory would have also um, collapsed. So that would have been a really huge economic blow to the city. But that we, you know, we got by without that happening. Um, but then other places like there, there's a very famous um, canned fish producing uh, factory which ended up relocating out of outside of Ishinomaki further inland. So that's a loss as well. So it hasn't all been uh, perfect and wonderful. Um, but you know, things are gradually sort of rebuilt 
building and things are gradually improving. In terms of the broader like reconstruction and recovery piece, where, where is Ishinomaki up to with that? Because I know Andrew and I, you know, flying in, traveling up on the, on the, on the fast train and then, and then driving in from Sendai, you know, we, all, we, we were discussing the car, you know, what, what, is, what are we going to find? You know, it's 12 years on now. How, how has the city fared? You know, where are they in that kind of broader journey of building back? I think you just said before that, you know, mostly there, but can you just expand on that in terms of, you know, general infrastructure, population moving back into the area or um, did you actually see, like what I want to ask is were there some people that just could not bear to stay, um, you know, after that disaster, it's a, a, quite a catastrophic and emotional thing to go through. Was there a, a portion of the community that just said, you know what, this place is not for me, um, the memories are too strong, we have to move away? What was the balance like with that in the community? Yeah, I mean, as, as I say, we're still we're still undergoing population decline. It's not increasing. And so, and there were definitely um, a number of people that moved away from Ishtamaki, exactly as you said, because they, they were traumatised and just could bear to live here and we're scared to live here um, and also kind of in a more prosaic way if they happened to if they lost their job in Ishinomaki and happened to find one in another city then you know they would move away because they would have to keep their families going um, so yeah I mean population decline is definitely a thing it was mm. a thing before the disaster it got worse after the disaster and it's still a thing now although it's not quite as the decline isn't as steep as it was just after the tsunami um, so that is definitely still an issue this, although on the other side I'm not I definitely want to paint this as a good thing in any way or form. Of course, the best thing would be if there hadn't been a tsunami at all. But the tsunami was so destructive to the city that in a way it was easier to kind of redevelop the city and it gave yeah. us gave us more of a blank slate to work on, which probably wouldn't have been possible if there hadn't been a disaster. And, and I repeat, that is not a good thing. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's definitely changed the trajectory of the city and you've got um, the inland kind of um, areas that were were sort of doing the best out of the you, you know the way that city centres tend to um, decline and mm. then the suburbs tend to like grow up and it's like a donut phenomenon yeah um, and that happened in Ishinomaki as well and it also increased after the disaster and you've got a lot of um, not just houses and shops coming up but the main sort of governmental facilities are also relocating to these kind of like more inland areas because they're safer against yeah. tsunami and so on so the whole centre of gravity of Ishinomaki in itself is kind of moving a bit further inland. That's really interesting. And, and and maybe one of the final questions just to kind of finish up on today, what is the future for Ishinomaki? You know, what, what is next for this area? What, what is the is the future bright in, in your perception? Uh, uh, no, I don't think the future is very bright, actually, which is a very depressing way to end it, isn't it? Um, uh, when I say that, I mean that you know, on an industrial level, we certainly haven't got back to pre-disaster levels, although, you know, we got a certain extent there. So there are still lots of issues there. Um, and just Ishinomaki in general is just not very suited to tourism as well, mm. because it's kind of a bit removed from everything. You have to, like, work a bit hard to get here. <laughs> um, and there are various other issues, like like nearby there's a really famous tourist attraction which people go to and then they just leave and they don't make it as far as Ishinomaki and so on um, but um, again ironically the disaster has 
meant more people coming just to see the disaster area and see how the recovery is going and, and what a tsunami can do. So that, again, it's not good that it happened, but it can be used you can't change the past. So that can be used as a way to attract people. Um, and also, um, even just before the tsunami, Ishinomaki was putting a lot of work into attracting large cruise ships. So I don't know if you remember the Diamond Princess, the place yep. that got lots of COVID and, uh, in Yokohama. Uh, that actually had come to Ishinomaki a few months before. Um, and so it would be nice if, if we could like get these big cruise ships coming back in, which would be a, a good boost in, in a tourist sense, and also give the passengers on that ship a good look at what the disaster area is and what it can do. So that would be something that I can get very heavily involved in because a lot of these passengers tend to be English speakers and I can talk about it in English. So there are, there are some you know, bright spots as well. It's not all darkness and gloom. So, so come and see us, everyone, yeah. So before we wrap up, Richard, we're here at the Katanawaki Elementary School ruins. And as a director, if someone wanted to come here from Australia, the UK, anywhere else on a bit of a holiday to Japan, why would they come to Ishinomaki and why should they come here? What's, what's to see? I mean, we haven't been into the facility yet, but it looks pretty awesome from the outside. Take us through what we can see here in the museum. Okay, so... Um it's just a re it's just the best place you can learn about the disaster um, and how bad it was. It's very difficult to picture how bad a, a tsunami can be without you know seeing things like this. So I would really re recommend people to come. Our facility, of course, I'm around um, not twenty four seven, but I'm around to you know talk to people in English and, and give them explanations about things um, we do have English information on display and English pamphlets um, and um, we also have a multilingual tablet guide that you can rent and, and, you, and read more information about the exhibits as you go around so that's quite well set up um, and the city as a whole um, this is kind of like um, slightly strange thing to say but it's a good city to visit because it's not Kyoto it's not the really big tourist area so it's a really good place to see just a typical Japanese city in addition to there being lots of natural beauty lots of mountains and, and you've got the river the ocean around um, and wonderful seafood you know if, if you don't like it raw you can have it cooked as well um, so there's great food and just the people are really friendly as well so um, it's just um, if you want somewhere that's a little bit different to go to not just the regular tourist attractions then I would say it's a really good place to go to yes I can totally vouch for the seafood I had a wonderful fish burger this morning from 7-Eleven for breakfast so <laughs> hoping to try some uh, better seafood while we're here which would be a whole lot nicer I'm sure so, definitely definitely do and uh, I think I've, this is like a tourist podcast now we've got come to Ishtamaki have the fish uh, bring back some logs from the log place and uh, yeah it's a great place to visit. I think it's really cool and it's cool to come here and actually see this in person yeah. and get a sense of how big the tsunami is and the impact on the community you don't get a sense watching the videos online or, or seeing the media the length of the recovery process and how challenging it's been and the extent of the flooding. Being here to see the landscape of how flat it is, I think as soon as we drove in here this morning, I thought, yep, this is how the tsunami was so impactful, being so flat. Just the topography and the terrain, you could just imagine a tsunami here washing so far inland because it is just so flat and everything's built right on the coast. So, Richard Halberstadt, thank you so much for joining us today and look forward to heading out with you now on a bit of a tour of the facility. And uh, we'll post that video on our YouTube channel and on our website at me, myself, disaster.com Richard thanks for joining us here on me myself and disaster thanks so much and thanks for listening everyone 
that's all we have time for on the show today. Join us again next time as we talk to more interesting guests from across the world about their experiences during disasters. We'll catch you then. Thanks for listening to Me, Myself and Disaster. Subscribe today at memyselfdisaster.com.